You're listening to Awakening with Rabbi Ami Silver on the Shefa Podcast Network. Join Rabbi Ami as he shares from the wellsprings of Jewish spiritual teaching and practice and guides us on a path of healing, transformation, and awakening to experiencing the divine. I want to talk about Purim and to touch on some of the mystery of Purim as I'm experiencing its mystery this year. Not to try to offer a true resolution or answer to that mystery, but to touch the mystery as a mystery. And to be helped by the teachings of our sages and our Torah throughout the generations to to guide us into that mystery. I want to begin by by quoting a Gemara in Masech and Megillah on page 13b, Yud Gimel Amud Bet. And the Gemara is talking about the lot, the, the lottery, the poor, that, that Haman drew. It's the name of this holiday, Purim, uh, because of the poor, because Haman drew lots to figure out which day he's going to um, you know, lead this campaign to try to kill all the Jewish people in the kingdom. And the Pasuk says, He pilpur hu hagoral, Haman drew lots. It was the lottery that he made. The Gemara teaches, Kevan afal pur b'chodesh adar samach simcha gdola. When Haman noticed, saw that the lots he drew, they fell on the month of Adar to be the time when he would lead his attack against the Jewish people. He rejoiced with great joy. Amar nafali pur b'yerach shemet bo Moshe. The lot fell for me on the moon, the month that Moshe died. Moshe died in the month of Adar. But Haman, what he didn't know when he rejoiced over the month of Adar, he didn't know that it's also the month that Moshe was born. That, yes, he died on the seventh day of Adar, but he was also born on the seventh day of Adar. That's what the Chachamim say. And it's just really weird. Like, first of all, what is this joy that Haman is rejoicing? Like, oh, it's the month that Moshe died. Like, did he, <laughs> did he have a yard site calendar on his wall and say, oh, see, it's Moshe's yard site that month. Great. And, 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 and what would it mean that Moshe died in that month? Why would that be something that's that's such reason for, for rejoicing, I guess giving him some kind of deep confidence about. And the rabbis answer that, yes, Moshe died on the seventh of Adar, but he was also born on the seventh of Adar, as if that somehow changes things. Like, yes, he was born on the seventh of Adar, but 120 years later, he died in the, in the month of Adar. So what does, what, what, what's going on here? Somehow Moshe's death in the eyes of Haman was something that filled him with joy, that somehow made him feel, I, I can only assume, that this was the right time to strike. And something the Chachamim are saying in Moshe's birth sort of upends all of that. Not only his perspective, but even the very prospect that you can, you can succeed in this mission. Because he's born that same day. 
And also part of what's striking here for me is that, you know, why is the figure of Moshe so important in the sort of dynamics of Haman and and and, and Purim? You know, this is centuries after Moshe's death that this whole story is taking place. And what does Moshe, his death and his birth, have something to do with, with the story of Purim? And another piece that I want to add here is the well-known Midrash of Chazal that also seems to implicate Moshe in some strange and mysterious way in the story of Purim which is that the sages teach that at Mount Sinai we were all there to receive Torah, but that we were coerced to accept it, that we really had no choice to not accept Torah. It wasn't a free reception, that God held the mountain over our heads, the Midrash says, and says, either you accept my Torah or... I'm going to bury you beneath this mountain. So, of course, we accepted the Torah. But that in the days of Achashverosh, Hadar Kibluha Bimei Achashverosh, in the Purim story, there was a true and lasting reception of Torah, one that we embraced willingly and with full desire. Biratzon. So, there too, there seems to be. Again, Moshe as as the giver of Torah, as the man of Torah, right? Zikru Torah Moshe. That Torah is like named after him, even the spokesperson of the Torah. Somehow, the the Torah of Moshe plays a central role here in the story of Purim. Somehow, the birth and the death of Moshe has, in the imagination of Chazal, something to do, something to do with this, and 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 to make that bridge even more explicit the truth is that Moshe's very birth his birth story itself relates to the giving of the Torah and I'll explain how the rabbis learn from you know reading the the dates through the the verses in the Torah that Moshe's birth date was on the seventh of Adar Zayin Adar and let's look at the birth of Moshe for a moment this is in, in Shemot in Exodus chapter 2 his mother becomes pregnant and gives birth. Vateled ben vatere otelkitofu, and she sees that he's good. And so she hides him for three months. So Moshe was born on the seventh of Adar, and the rabbis teach that when she sees he was good, it means that the whole house was was lit up with a light almost like the light of creation that God saw, Kitovu, that, that this is what, what Moshe sort of, in his birth, he brought with him that light of the world, and that was visible. But he had to be concealed, because you couldn't be giving birth to Hebrew boys in, in Egypt then, because of the decrees of Paro, right? All the, all the boys had to be thrown into the Nile. So she gives birth to him, so she hides him for three months. And then she couldn't hide him anymore, so she took a tevat gome. She took this teva, this little raft, this little ark, and she pads it and, and, and seals it and puts him into it and sends him 
into the, the Suf, Asfatayor, she puts him by the reeds at the edge of the Nile and sends him into the water. When did that take place? When was Moshe sent by his mother into the Nile? She gave birth to him on the seventh of Adar. She hid him for three months. He was a light that she hid for three months. When was that light no longer able to be concealed and had to be unleashed in this painful and, and terrifying way into the world? Three months after Zion Adar, Nisan Iyar Sivan. The seventh of Sivan is three months after the seventh of Adar. Three months after Moshe's birth is the day, the date that years later would be the day that the Torah was given at Mount Sinai, the seventh of Sivan. So Moshe, in the eyes of Chazal, is this light who's born into the world and concealed. And he has to be sent out. And the, t- the day that he's sent out is the day that will become Matan Torah. So somehow that story of Moshe in the Nile, ultimately seen crying by, by the daughter of Paro and, and pulled and saved from the Nile, somehow Moshe's birth story and then the story that feeds th- into this, this event three months later is also in some strange way forecasting something that's going to happen at Mount Sinai. And we'll come back to this. But, but just to see the link there... I want to share here a a way in which this very birth story of Moshe also seems to somehow be echoed with the story of Purim and specifically the story of Esther herself. <sighs> Esther also had a parent figure, at least, who who had to let her go into the threatening unknown. Right? Esther also had to hide. Like Moshe was hidden by his mother. Esther's identity was hidden by Mordechai's command on her. You can be in the palace, but don't let anyone know your true identity. Until finally, the decree reaches an unbearable point, and Mordechai comes and says, Esther, who knows, maybe this is why you are here. Maybe this is your moment to go to the king. And here too, she says, but I'm going to die. And he says, maybe it's your moment. And here too, that parent is letting the child, is letting Esther go into that unknown with the potential of meeting her fate there. Just like Yocheved had to let go of her child into the Nile. And when when the, the Chachamim view Esther walking to greet, to approach, really initiate, approach Achashverosh there too. Also, you see, Moshe was led into the Nile. He ultimately encountered a potentially threatening royal figure. Here too, Esther, she's going to the palace to encounter this potentially threatening royal figure. Chazal says that as she walks towards Achashverosh, she reaches a point where she feels that God's presence has completely abandoned her. And she cries out, Eli, Eli, lama azavtani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did you abandon me? And that's the state in which she then walks and goes to greet Achashverosh. Those words, God, why have you forsaken me, they come from Tehillim Kafbet, Tehillim Psalm 22. 
I'm going to read just bits of Psalm 22. This is a psalm said on Purim. The rabbis say that this psalm was, in a sense, the prayer of Esther. It opens, It's the song of the gazelle of dawn, the Ayelat HaShachar. And um, the rabbis say that the, the, that, morning dawn, that, that morning gazelle is none other than Esther herself. In the first verse, Eli, Eli, Lama Zavtani, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Rachok mi Yeshuati agati. The words of my roaring are so far and distant from my salvation. She goes on saying, I've been screaming and crying all day and all night, and I don't get any answer. But I want to read some of the verses here that the rabbis are saying, in a sense, is a prayer channeling the experience of Esther, but but I think we'll see some things in there that actually sound quite familiar to to that story of Moshe as well. I'm skipping to to verse nine and ten. Gol in a sense rely, lean yourself on God to be saved. You'll be saved, for God desires this one. Now listen to these words. Ki ata gochi mi baten. For you, this is the prayer to God, you, God, have drawn me out from the belly. Remember, Moshe was born in a somewhat miraculous way. The rabbis say he was he was born... Um, he was premature, so that so that he could be hidden um, sufficiently. But here, in a sense, looking to God as a, as as the Savior, you have drawn me, God, from the womb. You've granted me safety upon my mother's breast. And here, from if we want to read this in relationship to to baby Moshe, that's true in two ways. The first way, Moshe is born without the Egyptians knowing. And then, in a sense, is, is nursed for those first three months of his life in the safety of his mother's breast. Ultimately, he can't be hidden anymore. The child grows. He's, he's being loud enough to be heard and be noticed. And she, she lets him, releases him into the Nile. But then you remember what happens when Paro's daughter finds him. His sister Miriam is there and comes and says, I can find a wet nurse for this baby. And she brings him back to to his mother, to his mother's breast. So, God, you've granted me safety and protection on the breast of my mother. But now look, Pasuk Yud Aleph, Alecha hoshlachti meirachem mi betin imi eli ata. Upon you, God, I have been thrust, or I've been cast upon you, God, from the womb. From my mother's belly, you are my God. That word, hoshlachti, it means like to be cast away. It's the same word that is brought in Shmot to describe Paro's decree. The decree of Paro was, Kol haben hayilod, all boys who are born, hayyora tashlichuhu, cast them off into the Nile. Here, David Melech, Esther, the psalm is saying, I've been hoshlacht, I've been cast off. But where? I've been cast off onto you, God. 
Merachem, from my mother's womb, I was cast onto you. Mibetin imi eliata, in a sense, describing the sense that from birth, from the safety of the womb, I've just been cast away. I've been discarded and flinged off to you, God, to you. So it goes on, don't distance yourself from me. <laughs> Listen to these next words. Kamaim, skipping a few verses. Kamaim nishpachti, I've been spilled out like water. Hitpartu kolatz motai, all of my bones have been separated. Hayali bi katonag my hearts, my heart melted like wax in my insides. You know, if we think about we think about the story of Moshe and we just kind of read it. This happened, this happened, this happened. But, but what was the experience of that baby who was taken from his home and placed in this little raft in the Nile? It's total separation. It's total loss. It's total being cast off. Spilled like water, the psalm says. Look at the next verse. My strength dried like earthenware, but in those words, my tongue stuck to my cheek. My My tongue stuck to my cheek means I could not speak. I had no voice. Who is the one who cannot speak? The one who cannot speak is Moshe himself. What's being described here in the psalm is is an experience of loss and pain that's so traumatic that he loses the ability to speak and to kind of jump forward and backwards when Moshe says to God, I'm... My, my mouth is heavy, my tongue is heavy. He's saying, I don't have the ability to speak. Well, where does that mutism in Moshe begin? Is it possible that, that the trauma of being in the Nile is the first place that Moshe's voice was frozen, shut? The psalm goes on and speaks about all of the looming dangers and threats around and here we start to see it really relating to Purim Yechalku All of these sort of enemies, enemy forces, they div- they split up my clothes. They take my clothes and sort of divide it among them. Vi'al levushi, and upon my garment, yapilu goral. They draw lots. They do a lottery. Hmm. A lottery on my clothing. Save me, all different ways of asking to be saved. I will speak your name to others. I'll praise you. Because God, you have not you have not forsaken. You are not disgusted by the impoverished one. God, your face isn't hidden from the one in need. The hiding of the face that is forecast in the Torah and then embodied in Esther herself in the name of the one who is 
hidden. The psalm goes on and talks about God's somehow there's a hope that for, for this salvation and the ability to praise God on the other end of it. And the final Pasuk talking after the ones who will praise God amidst all of this they will come and they will speak God's righteousness this message of the God who does not forsake even through and beyond this depth of despair and trauma it will be spoken to and communicated to the Amnolad, to the people who are born, to the newborn nation, the Amnolad, Kiasa, for what God has done. And and here I can't help but see, in a sense, this sort of interweaving of stories of of baby Moshe cast away thrust into the Nile with the total loss of all sense and orientation unable to speak and finally some kind of possibility of nonetheless being protected and saved and and the message of the possibility of God still being there through that experience communicated to the Amnolad, to the people who are born, who are newborn. Remember what the rabbi said, Haman was so happy about the month that Moshe died and didn't realize it was also the month that Shernolad Moshe, the month that Moshe was born. On some level, I hear this this psalm as not just the prayer of Esther, but the prayer of Moshe and the Nile. The prayer, the scream, the anguish, that somehow has a sense that amidst all of this loss, there will be something born from this. There will be something born of this. Moshe, we know, he finally found the voice. But Paro heard him crying, and she pulled him out of the water. Moshe also finally found the voice when he stood on, a, on Mount Sinai and, and became the teacher, the orator of God's Torah. From this total loss and trauma that Moshe experienced, something was born from it. And from that total loss and trauma that Esther experienced of also letting go of everything that she knew of all her safety, of every semblance of an identity that could survive in this world, something was born from it. And in both cases, what was born was Torah. In both cases, what was born from Moshe's story was the Torah that we call the Torah, what was born from Esther's story was Torah. 
the Torah that the rabbis say, Hadar It was finally received, it was re-received in the times of Achashverosh. That in some way, in a way that is painful to even say, but we can't look away from the pain of, of these stories. In that unspeakable reality and experience, Through that unspeakable experience, there is a voice that eventually emerges on the other side of that. And that is Torah. What is Torah? What is the Torah that Moshe taught? What is the Torah that was received in the time of Esther? It's the voice, the speech, that is ultimately, eventually born after enduring unspeakable experience, unspeakable trauma, that there is some voice, the possibility of a voice on the other end of that, that when that voice emerges, that is what we call Torah. And you know what? Whose voice was silenced in that ark? and expressed through the tears of Moshe, and ultimately expressed in Mount Sinai, it wasn't just baby Moshe's voice. It was God's voice. The tears of that baby Moshe in the Nile that Paro's daughter responded to, that voice that came through after the unspeakable trauma is the same voice that spoke at Mount Sinai and said, Anochi Hashem Elokecha Asher Hoseitiha Me'eretz Mitzrayim. On a very simple level, or not so simple level, it's because that same baby is the one who stood up there on the mountain and, and God spoke through him. God spoke the, those words through Moshe's own voice. That that baby who endured the unspeakable terror of the Nile not only found his voice in wordless tears at the banks of the river, but spoke God's own self through him at Mount Sinai. His voice became God's voice there. But it's even deeper than that. Because what did God say at Mount Sinai? Anochi Hashem Elokecha. I want you to know who I am. I'm your God. I'm the divine source. I'm the one who brought you out of Mitzrayim. You know, Chazal says that the word Anochi, it's a strange word for me, for I. It's not Ani, it's Anochi. Chazal says Anochi is Lashon Mitzri. Anochi, Chazal says, is Egyptian is the Egyptian language term for I. That God came out at our Sinai and said, I speak Egyptian. I was there with you this whole time. I couldn't find my voice. I was silenced in the loss and the trauma and the pain of these hundreds of years. I was there with you with no voice, 
with no self to be known, no way to be heard or seen or known. And finally, we've been through this somewhere on the other end, and all God wants to say to us on our Sinai is, here I am. I want you to know me. I want to be known after having been so hidden and trampled and closed and having no voice for this whole time. I want to be known. And that same baby who was able to cry at the Nile became that voice of God who was crying out at Har Sinai, Anochi Hashem Elokecha. This is my voice. This is who I am. And that same process through which Moshe has to be discarded from his source to a total loss of self to reach the point of finding a voice and words. And the way that Esther also is detached from her source to end up on the other end and having a voice. In a sense, that's, that's what we all go through. Every single person comes into this world in this way. That birth itself is being dislodged from our source in a kind of violent upheaval through a disorientation and a, a forcefulness that just brings us forward where something knows what it's doing, but we don't know what we're doing and we don't know what, what or how things will be. And we get to the other end of it. And we don't always, but we oftentimes cry. There's a voice after that detachment. That's the voice of life. And you know, in a crazy way, it's, it's as if God is telling us through these processes of birth, of Egypt, of Esther, of Mount Sinai, as if God is saying, I too have to be born to be known. And for me to be born, I too have to let myself be lost. I too have to let myself be detached and discarded and silent. To emerge with a cry or with a word or with a teaching or a Torah on the other side. You know, Chazal says that the Torah is, is, I think the phrase is Nishrei Chochmah, or Nosher Chochmah. It's like the discarded leaf of Chochmah, a fallen leaf of, of wisdom, of true wisdom. That the most divine thing that we have in terms of wisdom is itself seen as, it's a, it's a scattered leaf of something much, much beyond it. But somehow in this terrifying and beautiful and <laughs> crazy cosmic reality, for the way that it happens is that God lets God's self be discarded from that source and this kind of divine knowing or consciousness goes blank and gets lost so to speak. Like that little baby in, in the Nile, in that teva. What's a teva, by the way? Moshe was sealed up in a teva. Teva is a word. 
It's a, a baby, in a sense, silently sitting in a word, a word that's pregnant with wanting to communicate something but cannot. It's simply floating through that river. And all that can emerge on the other end is at first to cry, but it eventually becomes God introducing God's own being and self to, to, to the universe. That's, in a sense, the process here. That's the goral, really. <laughs> the drawing of lots. The world that's thrust into a seeming sense of kind of game of randomness that doesn't have rules even, just kind of as thrust and turn and turn and turn and somehow amidst all that turning and that turmoil and that disorientation every once in a while there's something born there there's something that communicates to us there is a Torah that emerges from it it's as if God is saying I'm going to give birth to myself here and to do that I'm going to have to let go of myself here and emerge on the other end to speak to the Amnulad, right? What are those newborn people? The end of that Psalm 22. Who's going to be able to hear? Somehow the people who can also be born. The people who can also be born. It's through the process of being born and reborn that we were able to then hear something of the divine. And it's not distinct from us. It participates in our own unspeakable realities and experiences that we go through. Right? The people went through Egypt to hear God speak to them on the other side. Esther went through what she went through to be able to emerge on the other end. And each one of us goes through unspeakable experiences. We're unspeakable both because... They're too painful and unspeakable because we, we have no words. We, we enter into a state where there is no, there's a total loss of self and of expression and of, and of sense and orientation. And yet something is there that carries us through that. There's the teva that somehow carries us through that. We don't know it. We're not aware of it. There isn't awareness there. There's a loss of awareness there. But on the other end of it, is there a possibility for that vessel that carried us, that vehicle, that force that carried us through these experiences of the impossible. Well, there was something there that made it possible, wasn't there? And there's something there that makes my life possible now. To hear that voice speak, when that receives a voice, when that's born into a voice, that's the Torah that speaks through our lives. There's a teaching from the Rishna Rebbe. The Rishna says that the entirety of the Torah is included in the book of Breshit, and the entirety of Breshit is included in Parshat Breshit. All of Parshat Breshit is included in the first Pasuk, Breshit Bara Elohim. And that whole Pasuk of Breshit is included in that one word, Breshit. And that one word, Breshit, is all included in the letter Bet of Breshit. And the letter bed of Breshit, it's all getting condensed, concentrated, more and more and more small and and subtle. That bet, where do you go after the bet? That bet is included in the Nekudah Shebetoch bet. You know, a bet needs a, a 
dot, a point in the middle of it, just one single point. The reason are saying the entirety of all of Torah, it's just in that one tiny point. So small, so potent, and so concentrated. What's a point in a bed? It doesn't even have a sound, right? It doesn't even have a letter, but it is a something. The smallest something. And then he go, He went on, he said, V'ani hu habet. He said, I, I'm that dot inside the bed. Umi And so, by default, all of the Torah is included in me as well. Now, it's one of those statements that you read it and it's like, okay, what are these megalomaniac tzaddikim talking about? They think that they're God. They think that, that they're the sum total of the entirety of Torah. And, and, and I think that that's a misguided way of reading. What's the originator saying? He's saying things get smaller and smaller and smaller until they almost don't even exist. And at the point where it just barely exists, I identify myself that's me. Just a dot inside of the bed. And yet, the dot inside the bed that has not even a word or a sound to it. And yet, and yet, and yet, that I am here, that I can be so small, and that there is a force that keeps me here together, that that holds this life, that carries this existence. That is the entirety of the Torah right there. It's again that unspeakable, unknowable force that carries us through the things that we could never imagine possible. The things that, that we can never imagine going through And that's true from the deepest traumas to the deepest and greatest just moments of exaltation. It's when we touch those point of that anything can be. It breaks us out of our, our way of assuming things to follow certain order and expectation. There's something else here. There's something else here that, that, that is the sum total of my very existence, that I don't exist in any other way. This is the teaching of being newborn people, of coming, of experiencing life in some way as a process of how we come into the world again and again. How we pass through that unknown place of loss and loss of self and orientation and, and emerge on the other end of it and find a self who can speak or find an expression that speaks through us or not even in such a concrete way, touch something of reality when we touch that something of a reality and we can recognize and truly know somehow that's carrying me through all of this you know the, the Ramchal brings a wild source from the 
additions to the Zohar Chadash. If you don't know what that is, don't don't bother, don't worry. <laughs> but he he quotes somewhere that brings that pasuk of Kol Haben Hayyora Tashlichuhu, casting the the baby into the Yeor, and he the Zohar that he's quoting reads that Yeor not just as a denial, but as the the Oraita, the light of Torah, Nahora de Oraita. And Tashlichuhu, the Ramchal reads, is not only being cast off, but Taskilehu, that there is an illumination and in in an understanding that that somehow emerges from descending into that that light, that sort of unknowable light of Torah. And here I want to relate now a little more to Purim itself. The first thing I want to bring here is is from a teaching from the Arizal. It's brought in Shara Kavanot and in Priyitzchayim as well. That Esther, the Gematria of Esther, is equal to what's called the Milui of God's name, Aleph, Dalet, Nun, Yod of Adonai, but missing the Yod. <laughs> what that means, or what is a milui, it means instead of, you know, gematria, instead of the numerical equivalent of Aleph, Dalet, Nun, Yod, you spell out the letter Aleph, Aleph, Lamed, Fe, and you add up all those numericals. And then you spell out the Dalet, Dalet, Lamed, Taf, and you add those up. Then you spell out the Nun. So, <laughs> Esther is equivalent to that spelled out gematria, but only if you take out 10, if you take out the letter Yud from it. <laughs> and and, and Rav Chaim Vital writes, Hinei Shem Esther Chasera Yud. Why? Because the name Esther, it's also missing a Yud. And, and if you relate this to the Torah, it says, Anochi Haster, Astir et Panei When God says, I'm going to hide my face in the Torah, God says, I'll hide my face. It's Astir. It has a Yud in it. There's me, and I'm hiding. But Esther is the hiding. And for Esther to be the hiding, so you have to remove the Yud. That divine presence, that divine quality, actually has to be taken out of it. has to be completely concealed. writes, <laughs> It's such a beautiful and wild teaching that the only way for Esther to be the fulfillment of God's hidden face is for God to truly be hidden there. If God is in some way known to be hiding there, if there's a Yud, if it's austere, if it's me hiding, you're not really hiding. The only way for it to truly be the hiddenness is for God to be completely unknown there. For Esther to come back to Tehillim Kafbet to be completely forsaken by God. Eli, Eli, Lama Azavtani, you've abandoned me. There is no God with me here. Ah, now you're Esther. Now you're truly the one embodying the hiddenness. That divinity is hiding where? Within Esther herself. Not as something separate, not as a God who we know is there behind the curtains. No but as us merely fighting our way through the curtains. That's in some way that unknowability and our experience that 
to be able to go through those moments and experiences of life completely without God. Completely without God. That's where we where we learn the deepest Torah from. And not in the moment. And maybe not even a month later. Maybe not. Maybe it even takes a lifetime. Maybe it even takes generations. I don't know. I don't know. And I'm not, God forbid, trying to say that anybody's pain is meant for them to learn something. I don't have any explanation for this. But the teaching of Purim is that there is a possibility of a birth-like Torah. There is a possibility, and maybe maybe more than a possibility, that for there to be Torah, Torah exists in the world. God's revelation exists in the world through some kind of process akin to birth that is akin to a loss and a disorientation and that at some stage there are glimmers of voice and word revealed but they don't take away the pain they don't undo it but they somehow emerge from that ongoing life that carries us individually collectively in our lifetimes and even over generations through unspeakable and un unknowable experiences and here I want to touch on, on another teaching from the Ari about Purim and people know the famous Gemara that we have a obligation to get inebriated on Purim till we don't know and here too the emphasis on is on not knowing the difference between them Rabbi Vital teaches from his teacher, the Arizal, that within the depths of Klipa, within all places and realms of concealment, there is some spark of divinity, something holy, something sacred, something divine that exists within all things, and even those things of great klipa, of great covering, that allows it to exist, that allows it to exist, that enlivens it here. The reason, the purpose of saying a bracha to Haman is to draw light, to draw some recognition of that divinity to that spark in a sense to say to the godliness within Haman I bless you and that's why that bracha needs to be made with no intentionality at all it can't be conscious it can only be spoken by somebody who's so drunk that they have no consciousness left. Because if there's any smidget of intentionality there, so no, then you are you're supporting evil. You will enliven the klipa, so to speak. We can't look at evil. We can't look at trauma and say, 
you're good, you're godly. We can't say that. It's, it's destructive to do that. Haman can only receive a bracha by somebody who somehow returns to that state of not knowing, returns to the state of unknowing, and is able to contact something of a bracha in it. Rav Cohen, in his Zikute Ma'amarim, he relates to this teaching from the Rizal, and he says, This isn't something that we can understand with our human minds at all. How is it possible to bring a light to a holy spark that's imprisoned within Klipa, within this concealment? And you don't bring it out of the Klipa, and you don't raise it up at all. That's what we're doing on, on Purim. It's, there's nothing done with it. Is evil overcome by us? We don't change anything in our, in our objective reality here. We are somehow deeply relating to something that exists in concealment in, and not even lifting it up but letting it stay there. Rav Tzadok says, how is it possible that the that force of klipa and here he's adding the force of of evil that that grasps on that holiness somehow falls away through our ability to relate to it in this way through our ability to to kind of lose the well, I'm not, I'm not going to try to explain it he told us that we can't understand it how is it possible to relate to something deeply embedded in a place of darkness? To call and turn to its holiness and for it to just stay there and somehow for that to be enough for that darkness to no longer dominate. That, Rav Tzadok is saying, is an impossibility. And, and to me, it touches on, on this place of the unconsciousness of God that, that Purim is, is inviting us into, and that's kind of in the subtext of the story, you know, when, when Haman says to there is, Yeshno, there is this one nation dispersed and split among all the nations. Chazal says, Yeshno, doesn't just mean there is, it means that their Yeshno means their God is asleep. Haman Zatachashverosh, the God of Israel, is sleeping. God has gone offline. God is out. And Kabbalistically, that night when Achashverosh's slumber is woken, remember when that happened? It happened the night after Esther walked into the palace and invited Achashverosh and Haman, right after she after she was abandoned by God, after Mordechai's speech to her, and she went and she walked into Achashverosh and she said, I want you and Haman to come to my, to my wine feast. That night, the king's sleep began to shake. The king's slumber 
began to stir and God began, began to awaken from that slumber. And in a sense, that loss of consciousness we spoke about, that detachment from self, that even the divine detachment from self in an apparent way that we spoke of in order to let this reality be what it is and to birth consciousness and Torah through it, that began to wake up that night. You see in the story, like things rapidly begin to shift right there in the story of the Megillah. But this, in, in the teachings of the Ari, it's in a sense parallel to, to the Dormita, to that deep slumber that Adam was put into back in Gan Eden when Adam couldn't find a mate and put into that deep slumber. And what was birthed from that deep slumber, what was birthed from that deep slumber was from this undifferentiated singular being was born a couple was born separate consciousness was born a relationship of two who could turn and face one another and begin to engage in relationship and in knowing and in seeking one another that's what waking up is. It's being born into a reality where we can know and be known. In the Megillah, when God is sleeping, God cannot be known. As always says that the whole purpose of creation is beginning to Ishmodanle, God's wanting to be known. And part of wanting to be known involves these stretches of slumber and being woken and born anew on the other side of it. And in those stretches of slumber, we too go through the slumbers of unconsciousness, the slumbers of trauma, the slumbers of silence where we can't speak and we can't know. And somehow that desire, that forcefulness of creation, that dot in the midst of the bet, it's pushing and carrying us through something. And when we're in it, we can't say that and we can't know that. And when we're in it, we're Esther and not austere. There is merely hiddenness. And yet, there is a possibility of something being born. That's the great hope. The great hope of Perm is that something can be born through all of this. That there is something indestructible that carries all of this forward. that is birthed and born in different ways at different times. The point of Netzach, of a kind of eternal, indestructible quality that plays its way through the Purim story. We say at the end in the, the Piyut of Shoshan Yaakov, Chuatam Hayita Lanetzach. You are their Yeshua, you are their Savior, Lanetzach. And their hope for each and every generation. It's 
not something that necessarily will happen right now or even fully when it does happen. But we have a possibility of being in touch with that eternal quality to be able to experience it when it does arise, to be able to hear it speak when it does speak, to be able to voice it when the voice is returned to us, to be able to be born through this process. Bizain Adar Mate Moshe, Bizain Adar Nolad Moshe. Moshe died and was born. Moshe's death itself. His death itself wasn't an end. His death itself was a birth of sorts. You know, we said all the way back in the beginning, Moshe's first Torah, so to speak, was him crying on the banks of the Nile. You know what Moshe's last Torah was? Those last verses of Torah Moshe left for us with his tears, Chazal said. The last eight verses of the Torah Moshe wrote with his tears. You birth the Torah of tears. A Torah that can be spoken through tears and can withstand all of the tears. The Torah that withstands and outlives his very death. Perm's inviting us to dip our toes into the unknown that Moshe knew. And from there, the possibility, for me, just a heart of prayer, of possibility, that we can receive a bit of the Torah that is wanting to be born for us and through us, in each one of us. Moshe died in a place that is unknown his burial place is called Lo Yada. It's called a place of not knowing. And on Purim we're invited into Adolo Yada. We're invited into the Torah that Moshe received, the Torah that Moshe teaches, the Torah that maybe we can also not know. This podcast is supported in part from a grant from the Hadar Institute. The music is by Rav Daniel Cohn. The audio engineer is David Kwan. For more from the Shefa Podcast Network, visit our Facebook page and please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts.